Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When it comes to buying and selling sex, people most commonly think of men as the buyers and women as the sellers. And men are indeed far more likely than women to say they paid for sex before. For example, according to a 2016 National YouGov survey conducted in the United States, 12% of men said they had paid for sex before, compared to just 1% of women. However, according to the same survey, an identical 6% of men and women said they had sold sex before. So while there's a big gender difference in having paid for sex, there actually isn't a gender difference, seemingly, when it comes to having been paid for it. It's also possible that the number of women who have paid for sex before is higher than these polls suggest because women may be more reluctant to report this behavior than men given its taboo nature. Also, some women may exchange money for sex but not characterize it as buying sex because they were buying romance instead. Recent media reports suggest that the number of women paying for sex may be on the rise. So let's talk about it. Today's episode is going to be all about women who buy sex and the men who sell it. I am joined by Hallie Lieberman, a sex historian and journalist whose work has been covered all over the media. She is the author of Buzz, A Stimulating History of the Sex Toy, which we discussed way back in episode 21 on this podcast. She is also currently working on a book covering the history of gigolos. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Healthcare training programs usually include some information about gender and sexuality, but few of them give you adequate training if your goal is to become a sex therapist or educator. This is where the modern sex therapy institutes can help. MSTI offers a PhD program in clinical sexology, as well as multiple certification programs in sex therapy and sex education for mental health and medical professionals. All trainings can be completed 100% online. Whether you're looking for a certification or simply an opportunity to build and expand your knowledge base, MSTI can help. For more information on their programs and offerings, find the link in the show notes or visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. Educated is like Netflix for better sex. They have a library of online courses with more than 100 hours of content to help you level up your intimate life. Their courses can be completed individually or with a partner, and you can learn about a ton of topics, including kink and BDSM. Their Dominance and Submission course runs you through everything you need to know, from consent communication and negotiation, to ideas for things to try, to aftercare. It's full of practical guidelines to help you and your partner get exactly what you want. You can try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, which I know you will, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Hi, Hallie, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm so excited to talk about gigolos. I was going to say my second favorite subject, but no, equally love dildos and gigolos. 
<laughs> dildos and gigolos. I love it. So thank you so much for joining me. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. And as a sex writer, you are always covering super fascinating stuff, and I love to follow your work. And one of the things you've written about recently is sex work, but specifically from the perspective of women as purchasers and men as sellers. So as a starting point, what made you interested in wanting to explore sex work from this perspective that we don't often hear that much about? Yeah, well, I will back up. I was living in Berlin and sex work was legal, is legal in Germany. And so I was like, this is awesome. Um, let's see what they've got for women because there's stuff for men everywhere. It's like this, you know, patriarchal sex paradise. So I'm like, okay, there's got to be some good stuff. And, you know, I'm looking, I don't see it in the streets. You can see like lots of stuff for men in the streets, like advertisements for this and that and this strip club and the sex thing. And like, I'm searching and searching for women's things. And I find like one sad, like tantra sex thing for women. I mean, it wasn't sad, but it was like all filled with kind of like this hokey, like, oh, this is Zen and whatever. And then we'll get you off. It was very filled with like faux Eastern religion stuff. But anyway, I was like, well, that's all we've got. We got to do it. And so my boyfriend was selecting a male or sorry, I wish female sex worker. (laughs) And I was selecting a male one. So I had a choice of two. He had a choice of like 17. And I was like, oh, you know, I was like becoming an angry feminist. Why do I have only a choice of two? So I chose this guy, Nils. Um, No, actually, I chose like a guy, Frank. And then like we called him like Frank is like on vacation or he like no longer worked for the company. They're like, you have to go with Nils. I'm like, fine, I'll go with Nils. He's okay. And then Eric, like there were like every woman was employed at place. So he got to choose every single woman. So I was like really annoyed about this, but anyway, I had a great experience in spite of all the religious thing. It was like a massage and then a hand job. It was really fun. And I'm like, why, you know, why isn't this legal in the U S and why don't they have more things for women in Germany? That experience that you described about how the industry really seems to cater to men, you know, that's true in lots of other places around the world. I teach study abroad courses in Amsterdam and in the red light district. It's pretty much all women who are selling sex. And, you know, it's some of those women do provide services to other women. But if you're looking for male sex workers in the red light district who are catering to a female client base, you're not really going to find them. So yes, the options are definitely very different based on the gender of the people who are looking and who is selling. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, surveys suggest that there aren't that many women who have paid for sex before, but some certainly have. So what do we know about the women who buy sex? So specifically, let's start with their demographics. Do we know anything about the profile of women who buy sex? Are they younger, older, single, married? What do we know about their background? Yeah, well, we don't know a ton about it. A lot of the research has come from Australia where sex work is legal and there is like a gigolo industry. So among those groups and among a little bit in the U.S., usually the women are 30s, 40s, a little bit older, but... When I've talked to gigolos themselves, you have women from, and I've talked to some in Australia, women from their 20s to their 80s who buy sex. Some women actually pay uh, sex workers to lose their virginity. And one story 
the, the, uh, one of the sex workers, which I did write about, uh, was telling me was that this woman's stepmom actually paid for her to go see him and lose her virginity to him because she thought that this was important. The woman, it was a kind of a mental block. And they pay for sex workers for a variety of reasons. But one thing, and, and this I think is key and is a little different than why men pay for sex, it's a safe experience for women. I mean, this may seem like counterintuitive, but this is a person who is advertising, who you know is probably not going to rape you, is not going to assault you, who is a professional. And especially women who have experienced sexual assault, which is way too many, that is a real bonus. So you raise a lot of interesting points there. And it's also the case that there are some men who pay for sex in order to have their very first sexual experience. In fact, that used to be extraordinarily common. You know, when Alfred Kinsey did his pioneering research on human sexuality in the 1940s and 50s, I believe he found that somewhere around 69% of the men he had surveyed had paid for sex before, which is a huge number. And back then, it was actually pretty common for men to pay for sex for their first experience experience because sexual attitudes were very different. You didn't have hookup culture and casual sex in the same way in the 1940s that you do now. So people's motivations and reasons for seeing sex workers have changed over time. I think that's become less common for people to have their first sexual experience that way. But I have also heard of some mothers who will actually pay for a sex worker for their sons. So, you know, this can kind of go in a lot of different directions. It's really fascinating. But let's dive into those reasons for buying sex a little bit more. So if you look at men who buy sex, I've seen research on this suggesting that their reasons are many and varied. You know, sometimes it's because they're in a relationship and they just have a low frequency of sex and want more. Maybe they have a desire for uncomplicated sex. They have an interest in doing something taboo, having a type of sex they've never had before. Or maybe they want companionship and intimacy more than anything, right? So they're kind of all over the place in terms of their reasons. So what are some of the other reasons why women might pay for sex that you've come across? Yeah, and what's interesting is that you mentioned like these reasons are all over the place for men. They are for women as well. And the surprising thing, there was a book that came out a few years ago and it was written by women and about women who paid for sex. And they're like, actually, the reasons women pay for sex aren't that different than the reasons men pay for sex. Like we like to think, you know, the whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus, whole thing, like men and women are so different. They're not. So the reasons varied. I mean, some of the women I have spoken to said, hey, my husband and I were not having a lot of sex. I considered having an affair in the workplace, which is like, ironically or weirdly considered more normal and socially acceptable than hiring a sex worker. But she said she did not want to blow up her relationship with her husband. And affairs can do that. They're emotional. So she said the safer option would be to hire a sex worker. So now in society, she is shunned more for hiring a sex worker, even though she's trying to protect her marriage, which was so interesting to me. And this woman, um, told her husband what she'd done. She thought he'd be really upset. He was relieved. They ended up opening their marriage. It was a happy ending. So that's some of the reason. Uh, the other reason is, you know, there are single women who are sick of online dating. And I wrote about like men of OnlyFans for BuzzFeed. And this is like not even in-person sex. This is just virtual. Like women get a ton of dick pics 
all the time, unsolicited. But the women I spoke to were actually paying for dick pics. And what was really interesting was it gave them power and control over receiving sexual imagery, which is something women don't have in our culture. So I do think that that's a little different than the reasons that men pay for nudes. And I think for both genders, it is about sexual pleasure. Women are visually stimulated and they are paying not just for sex, but for the experience for both genders. Like they are paying for the emotional thing. You talk to, I've talked to so many sex workers. They all say, I'm like a therapist. I provide therapy for people. Anyone can sell pictures of their genitals online, right? Not everyone can be a star on OnlyFans. The one, the men who are the stars on OnlyFans, um, who have female and, and male fans are the ones that are good talkers, have good personalities, have good stories, make connections with male and female clients. That's what takes it to the other level. It's hard work and it requires compassion and empathy. Yeah, there's definitely an emotional labor component to a lot of sex work because so many people are looking for more than just sex. And, you know, in terms of motivations for women to visit a sex worker, we did talk about some gender differences there. Another one is that for some women, they've just never really felt like their pleasure has been a priority. You know, it was always about giving pleasure to others. And so buying sex can sort of flip the script on that and make it all about you and your pleasure. So sometimes it is just about that pure pleasure motive and then also not feeling guilty about it because there's not all of the relationship history and emotional entanglement and all of that. So I think in some ways it is often about that sort of pleasure-seeking angle. But it does also go back to something you mentioned earlier where sometimes there is this history of trauma. And so seeing a sex worker can actually be therapeutic in some ways because it's a safe way to sort of work through that trauma with an understanding, compassionate partner who's going to be there to give you what it is that you need. So that therapeutic motive can also play a role in some cases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I want like the thing that you mentioned that I didn't bring up with was about like pleasure without guilt. Thanks for bringing that up because that came up again and again. A lot of women like so I've talked to these male sex workers um, who do in-person work and they offer packages where they like cook dinner for women. Now, one of them I, who I've criticized, hopefully he won't listen to this, his like dinner like advertised was like a smoothie and a pile of white rice. So that's not dinner. Okay. But anyway, some of them were good cooks and made chocolate souffles and all this. And they said when they were doing like, so it was like sex, it was dinner first and sex, something like this, massage and sex. When they were doing the dinner portion, women had trouble, their clients just sitting there. They would be like, let me help you chop this. Let me help you do this. And um, because they were so conditioned that they couldn't sit and relax. And the sex worker, John O, who I talked to about this, said he had to actually say multiple, multiple times, no, this is just for you. And same thing, you know, women are so conditioned to think that they have to provide that, you know, the end point of sex is a male orgasm, not a female orgasm. Man has an orgasm, sex is over. If a woman has an orgasm, it's a bonus. It's an optional thing. It's, you know, sex is defined by penetration to orgasm for a man. 
So for women to even, a lot of women don't even want to ask for their own sexual pleasure in a relationship. They don't want to say, you know, they're faking orgasms and they have been for years. I know people have been faking orgasms in their marriage for 15 years and they're like, I can't switch now. He'll know I faked for 15 years. So it's like, I'm going to do this until I die. It's like, wait, no, that's not good. So for some, the freedom to just hire someone and say, this is what I need. They can't tell their husband that because they don't want to hurt his feelings. And it's the same sort of thing for men. Um, so they need cunnilingus, they need whatever. And so they feel more free telling a stranger, um, a trusted stranger that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that there can be like a dinner menu that goes along <laughs> with, you know, buying sex, right? Because there's so much diversity in these experiences. I think oftentimes when people think about the sale of sex, they think about meeting up in a hotel room and you just get right to business. But there's really no standard script here. You know, sometimes there is dinner. It might look more like a date. Some people go on vacations. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the various forms that sex work might take when women are buying sex that go beyond like just the meet up in a hotel room? Yes. And so what was really interesting to me was a lot of the male sex workers who, uh, with female clients or gigolos, a lot of the gigolos had with their female clients and some of them exclusively female clients, they were like, our first date's got to be four hours. And they called them dates. That is a huge contrast to, I've interviewed female sex workers who said, you know, I used to do 15 minute appointments, but it's not worth it anymore. I'm, I've, I've increased to a half an hour. Okay. I've never seen um, even an hour for a gigolo, like having an hour appointment for a lot of these guys was unusual. So the four hour thing, a lot of guys, it was like that because they met in a public place. So the woman feels comfortable. Like some, even it was a platonic first date. After that, they would go to the hotel room or whatever. But the ones that aren't hotel rooms, I mean, some women I talked to, they went hiking with their gigolos. They had actual dates they went to, like a state fair. They did these other activities. So it was like a relationship and then they would have sex or they would, you know, have this guy's a plus one at a wedding. You know, they felt weird going alone. Um, there's that kind of things. But the vacation thing was so fascinating. You have to be pretty wealthy to do this, but some, but the guys love this. So they would have, they would take their gigolos on vacation and spend thousands of dollars. It would be like an all-inclusive trip. And it was just like having this companion, having this bounded experience. They would have sex multiple times a day, but there would also, you know, sometimes the gigolo would across a separate room for downtime because emotional labor was so hard. So there were a variety of experiences like that. And also, I mean, other things that like even male strippers, and I've seen this, male strippers will sell sex. Chippendale sell sex historically in Atlanta. We have male strippers who sell sex and some of the women have sex in the clubs while getting a lap dance. So that's like the more, you know, what we associate unfairly actually with male interactions with female sex workers, women do the same thing. And some of them don't use condoms, according to the male sex worker, which is not uh, good. Yeah. And, you know, this diversity and experience that's there, like, yes, you know, you also see that with men who are buying sex. But one of the big differences is that men's visits with sex workers tend to be much shorter in duration. And one prime example of this is in Amsterdam in the red light district, you basically buy sex in 15 minute increments. You know, the most common purchase is 50 euros for 15 minutes, 
But the average guy who buys this only spends five to six minutes in there, right? This is very quick service. And he's leaving like nine or 10 minutes on the table. And I think that's because, you know, in this quick service area, the goal is get the client to orgasm as quickly as possible, get some extra time back so that you can see more clients, make more money. So, you know, that's one model of sex work where I don't really think there is an equivalent of men selling sex to women where it happens in such a short time period. But part of that is also just, you know, amount of time it takes to reach orgasm and maybe what it is people are looking for in that encounter. So it is so fascinating to explore this world of sex work and the many and varied forms that it takes. But I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about women feeling safer buying sex than having casual sex, right? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, that there's all these dating apps around Tinder and so forth where you can arrange sexual encounters with someone for free, but it feels safer to a lot of women to buy sex than to meet someone through an app. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, what are some of the reasons why casual sex might seem risky to a lot of women? And what is it about engaging with a sex worker that feels safer? Yeah. So, okay. So there's like a number of reasons casual sex can feel more risky to women. First off, casual sex, you don't read reviews. Okay. So like Tinder does not have a review section. It should. Well, maybe not. No, I take that back. Comments <laughs> are horrible. Erase that from the record. Um, yeah. So, so you don't know, like the, the best you can do is be like, Hey, do you know this guy? I mean, so you don't know what you're getting. You could be getting anything. Gigolos have reviews a lot of the times. They have blogs. Like one of the guys I talked to, John O, he said, you know, he puts on his blog all these things about gardening and what he's growing in his garden. Um, not because like all his clients love gardening, but it's like a way of saying, I'm safe. I'm a normal guy. I like gardening. I mean, he genuinely does love gardening. I do not. I find gardening very boring, but this appeals to certain clients. So there's that. And he said all his clients frequently have read every single blog post on his site. And he has, you know, dozens of them because, and they spend months waiting to, you know, get comfortable and get this appointment. So that's one of the things is, you know, a lot more about the person. The other thing is STIs, sex workers, as they will tell you, they can't work if they've got STIs. They do not want to have them. It's so they're very, very careful and also very respectful. Like if you ask a drunk guy at a bar, hey, I want you to wear a condom, might be like, oh, I don't like condoms, you know. But a sex worker is like, yeah, this is their job. You're paying them. They care about safe sex as well. You won't even, you know, probably have to ask them to do that. They will want to. So there's a sense that you are entitled to ask for your own safety, your protection, and your pleasure, which is sad that women can't ask for this in hookups, but they can. And women, I mean, there's an orgasm gap. Women are much less likely to have an orgasm during casual sex than men are. I mean, and that goes back to like men taking five minutes, women taking like two hours. It's not really that different, but it's it's a difference. And so a, a woman, the, what's the benefit of a casual hookup? Yes, she'll get, you know, some sexual pleasure. She's probably not going to have an orgasm. She might be afraid that this guy could assault her. And there's no orgasm guarantee. Some of these sex workers give an orgasm guarantee. That's amazing. So, I mean, there's a lot in it's a bounded experience. So with a hookup, you don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know if you they're not going to leave and you want to just be alone. 
with a sex worker, it's like, here's this chunk of time. And you can even send your friend a link to their website. So it's just, it's a different, it feels safer for a lot of women in that way. Yeah. And if you're getting a home-cooked meal and an (laughs) orgasm guarantee, like (laughs) I get the appeal, right? It makes sense. Oh my God. It's, I know I got my boyfriend to make a chocolate souffle after like shaming him, like this, this jiggle does that. I will just hire him. And he finally made one. So let's talk a little bit more about the men who sell sex to women. Now, for some listeners, they might envision someone who looks like Fabio, you know, on the cover of a romance novel. He's got these chiseled facial features. He's super muscular, probably has a huge dick. But what's the reality here? You know, what have you learned in terms of male sex workers and in terms of physical traits, features, characteristics? Yeah, so I had the same stereotype in my mind, too. I thought, like, giant dick, the most gorgeous man, looks like a movie star. You'd be walking down the street, and you'd be like, oh, my God, like, I will pay you thousands of dollars for cunnilingus. And that's, like, not not the case, not even close. So some of the guys have, you know, a few extra pounds. Some of the guys are bald. Some are, you know, in their 50s. I mean, I've talked to some. Were they 60s? I think one was in his 60s. Um, Scotty Bowers, the uh, sex workers, the pimp to the stars um, that Ryan Murphy did a whole series about, who was also a gigolo. He worked until his 60s. So you never know. They aren't necessarily gorgeous. Um, They range in age, but a lot of the guys I talked to, they were in their 30s, 30s to 40s or 50s. Some had good bodies, but the commonality was not that like they're the hottest people in the room. It was that they're like kind of the most charming, right? Like they're people who you get on the phone with them and you feel like you've known them forever, even though you just met them like a minute ago. And they have soothing voices. They're telling you about your day, their day and asking you about yours. And they keep, they're listening. I mean, that is the key thing. Like they actually are listening. I mean, it seems so basic, but like a lot of uh, women are hiring male sex workers because they don't have someone to listen to and they're stuck listening to other people all day long. So yeah, that was their commonality. Uh, but yeah, I mean, some of them, they even said to me, I don't have a huge dick. It's average size. There's nothing special about my dick. Now, some of them did have huge dicks. And if that's what you want, fine. But yeah, it was really kind of fascinating. I mean, I think that highlights the fact that anyone can be a sex worker. Anyone can be interested in purchasing sex. These are all very diverse groups of people. But oftentimes when people are buying sex, it's not necessarily about buying your fantasy, you know, this idealized person with the perfect physique that you've always fantasized about. It it is often about that emotional connection. And so having that winning personality can be really a big part of the draw in a lot of these cases. Now, sex work is one of those areas where male workers on average actually make less than female workers. And partly as a result of that, it's often a side gig for men who work in this industry as opposed to a full-time job. So what can you tell us about the going rate for these guys? And besides money, you know, what are some of the other reasons that men become gigolos? Yeah. Yeah. So the going rate was, well, it depends. Okay. So on the low end in Atlanta and low end maybe isn't fair. It was about 225 for like a massage and sex per hour 
for a woman to hire a gigolo. A little prorated if you add more hours. Sometimes it'd be like 400 or 350 for two hours, whatever. But these can go up to, so like $400 an hour, $500 an hour. The thing like is though, because like women are having these longer dates, you know, sometimes they prorate them, but the the other thing is they don't have as many clients. So a lot of the uh, sex workers I talked to, they had a lot of regular clients and they just didn't have as many clients as female sex workers did. So charging more sometimes made sense. Even if you charge more though, you don't have the volume. But your other part was like, why are they in this business? Yeah. Why besides money? Yeah. Why besides money? Well, first off, like, you know, as some guys I've talked to are like, every guy's fantasy is to be jiggle, to be so good at sex that women are paying them. But most of the guys I talked to hadn't had that fantasy. They had gone into it. Some of them had gone into it because their partners were sex workers. Like they'd either hired sex workers or were dating a sex worker and their partner's like, oh my God, you're so good at sex. You're so sexy. Like you should charge for this too. Um, And so that was a surprising amount of men. That was their way that they entered into the industry. Others, you know, but like why, like psychologically, like what was driving them? I mean, like a lot of them, it made them feel good to provide other people pleasure. It does, it does feel good. And so that was a part of it. They liked helping people. Some of the uh, people I talked to, they had disabled clients, they had clients with autism. They knew they were, you know, making this difference in the light in their lives. In some ways, it's like social work, but it has its downsides as well. And so, I mean, I think for some of them, it's like, oh, you think you're going to go in there and get to like fuck like super hot people and, you know, this will be great. And, you know, clients look a range of ways. Some of them have clients who smelled like one told me this person had such like a horrible odor and they didn't want to say anything to them. But finally they did because they couldn't handle it. So, you know, you have and it, it went over fine. But so you have this whole range of things that you're dealing with. And it's the stereotype for a lot of people is like, oh, well, men can't sell sex to women or to men because they have to get a boner and they can't get erections on demand, all this stuff. Um, and so that was a challenge for these men as well. It was a real challenge. And some always took Viagra, some didn't. But even that, apparently, I don't know, you know, probably know more about that than I do. That doesn't necessarily give you an erection, right? Yeah, it doesn't create an automatic erection, which is why some people who work in the porn industry will use these penile injections instead that do give you like an almost instantaneous rock hard erection, but they carry a greater risk of what's called priapism, where you get this erection that doesn't go away on its own. Ooh, okay. That is scary. Yeah, yeah. Um, So what was interesting is that like, yeah, they would take these pills. Um, I did not hear about injections, although male strippers do use injections. I've heard that. But they would take these pills, but then they'd also, you know, have to find something attractive about every single client. And they said that was the key. They had the type of personality where no matter what, no matter the age, weight, race, whatever was going on, a personality, they had to find that one little trait that was attractive. That's what allowed them to perform. And that's a certain personality type that can find anyone attractive. And that was what drew some of these guys to the work was 
they were able to get horny for a wide variety of people. And not everyone is. There's a stereotype that's unfair that guys will fuck everything. They'll stick their, you know, dick in any hole. That's not true. They are going to get hard for anything. But these were guys who had like very wide sexual tastes. Yeah. And what you described there reminds me a lot of the research that I've read on female sex workers in terms of their motivations for entering the profession and what their experiences are like. So there are people of all genders who become sex workers just because they like the job. You know, it's something that has a, an appeal to them. They might also enjoy it because it has a flexible work schedule. And yes, you know, the money can be an appeal, but you know, sometimes there are motivations where it's just like, you really do need the money. And sometimes it's an option of last resort. So there are very different reasons that draw people to this. And yes, people's experiences are mixed. Sometimes they have great, wonderful experiences with clients. And then sometimes they also have those difficulties when it comes to feeling aroused because they might not be attracted to their client and so forth. So where do gigolos usually work and find their clients? Now, you wrote an article for the website Them about a trans male sex worker, Braden Hughes, who works at a Nevada brothel, but he's the exception rather than the rule when it comes to male sex workers. It's pretty rare for them to work in brothels. You know, and as I mentioned earlier in the show, when I go to Amsterdam and, you know, you're in the red light district where you have all these brothels, there's... I think there's one that has male sex workers, but it caters specifically to the gay male community in terms of clientele. So where do male sex workers, gigolos, where do they work? Is it mostly online? It's mostly online. And it's interesting that you bring up, it's mostly on Twitter, actually, like women search for male sex workers on Twitter because it's one of these social media sites that doesn't ban sex workers to be fair, they shadow ban them a lot of the time, but it allows sex to be on there as opposed to Instagram and Facebook, which ban sex toy ads, kick off sex educators, the whole thing. But it's interesting you bring up Amsterdam because in the 90s, I think I believe it was 95, they did an experiment with male sex workers for women in the windows. And women were so excited. They flooded um, this call center to make appointments. It caused basically a, like almost a riot in Amsterdam. Apparently there was one story, it may be apocryphal, but I choose to believe it's true. Like women were on the beach. They heard the announcement about male sex workers on the radio. They packed up their towels and went running. And so it showed that there was this demand there. But what happened was a lot of the other owners of brothels in the area got very angry and were like, this is taking away our business. It's creating a spectacle. And it got shut down after a few days. But the woman I talked to who started this, she said that secretly after that, she was still connecting women with gigolos behind the scenes. So I think that the reason we don't have like public facing things like that, like we do for men is because we uh, live in a patriarchal culture. If we were in a matriarchy, there would be gigolo brothels like on every corner, just like there are for men in massage parlors. So there are massage parlors for men that are basically brothels in every small town in America. That's patriarchy for you. So for women, they're seeking sexual experiences, like I said, even in places where they're legal, it's much harder to find them. So they are finding them as sex workers advertising on Twitter. 
There's other websites like Slixa um, and Trist, which have uh, male sex workers for women advertisements. But again, some of these websites, and this is discriminatory, have only allowed women to advertise. So then there have been other websites like Mint Boys that allow for male sex workers to advertise. And what was interesting, I talked to the founder of this site, and he said they weren't going to allow women to sign up to be like clients or uh, male sex workers who appeal to women to be on the website. And then they decided, we're gay men. We've been discriminated against. Are we just going to like do that to women now? Like that's not our philosophy. And they changed their mind and now they allow it. But I mean, even like rent men and stuff, it's all for, you know, basically for gay men. I think that like male sex workers are marginalized in general, but the ones that are most visible are the ones that are for gay men. And then it goes, the, the ones that market towards women are even more marginalized. So it's this really, it's like, you have to search, you have to do your work. You have to Google, Google, Google to find things. It's not easy to find, but there's this like small network on Twitter of women who share this information. It's amazing. So interesting. Now we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you, which is what you've learned and taken away from all of your research into women who buy sex and men who sell it. So has your perspective on this shifted in any way after talking to all of these buyers and sellers of sex? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's made me think like basically that buying sex is something that can be like psychologically and physically and emotionally, everything like good for women. The reason women don't buy sex isn't necessarily because they don't want to, because there's some basic like biological reason they don't want to, or not because they aren't into casual sex or anything like that. No, women have some of the same motivations as men. It's really our society and really our culture that has caused women to not buy sex and not think that they should be doing it. It's, it's, it's culture. It's not some innate thing. And so that was the big thing that I've learned uh, through this research. And one of the other things I'll mention that I've learned through the very limited amount of research that's out there on women who buy sex is that the vast majority of them are satisfied with their experiences, right? And so for the most part, it tends to match their goals. You know, they got out of the situation what they wanted and what they were paying for. So, you know, that's just another important thing to highlight here in this broader conversation is that women do buy sex and the women who do buy it tend to be pretty happy with the outcomes of it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Hallie. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your book? Yes. So uh, they can go to my website, hallielieberman.com. I write a lot for BuzzFeed News. Look for me on there. I'm on Twitter and Instagram with my name. So I was the first person to get my name. So I, I was happy about that. And you can get Hallie's book, Buzz, pretty much anywhere books are sold. And it is a fascinating look at the history of sex toys. Thank you again for your time. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>